Welcome, everyone, to the Philosophy of Education. Tonight, we're joined by Joseph Connor, who is the founder and CEO of Agora. It's a digital wallet and marketplace that helps families access funding for K-12 providers and vendors. Before starting Agora, though, Joseph founded and ran Schoolhouse, a micro-school network, which he helped scale to over 50 schools. We're super excited to have him here today talking about the radically changing and developing landscape of education, the future of education. Quick reminder, as usual, this room is going to be recorded and published later in a podcast form. Thanks, Dagny. And thanks for thanks for joining us, Joseph. I actually didn't know about a <laughs> So, <laughs> so uh, now I have a bunch of questions that I'm rapidly taking notes on to ask you about. But thank you for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into the future of education, maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about your story in your own words. So what I do know is that you've been involved with KIPP and I think alt school and um, you've done a bunch of different things in education. So how did you yeah. get to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the K-12 sector in one role or another for about 12 years now. So started as a teacher at the KIPP charter schools. So worked in Philadelphia and DC at the elementary and high school levels, then worked out on the West Coast at Rocket Ship Education, where I was a teacher and a school leader. What happened when I was out there was I'd actually been recruited to open up my own charter school. And we were in the process of opening it when we got sued by a uh, teacher's union, a local affiliate of a teacher's union out there. So oh, we so we ended up having to have public hearings and it went to litigation. And ultimately, we actually lost the case. So at that point, I had devoted a couple of years of my life to uh, public charters, really wanted to open them up because they were highly effective at, at kind of helping low income families um, and had been prevented by kind of this lawsuit. So I figured that in America, you needed to be a lawyer to open up a school. So I kind of took a little bit of a different path, ended up going to law school, working as an attorney for old school. That was my first job on graduating. They were a Silicon Valley startup that raised $200 million out of the Bay Area, helped them with their micro school strategy, um, which kind of then later laid the basis for Schoolhouse. In the interim, I started working with a lot of nonprofits and advocacy organizations and other micro school networks like Prenda was involved in the Espinoza case, which was a Supreme Court case over the right of parents to use state funding to attend religious schools, which was a really interesting case to work on, and then started Schoolhouse a couple of years ago. And so basically, the idea behind Schoolhouse was that I saw more and more kind of demand from parents and teachers for small micro schools. So started them and scaled them basically to about 50 schools um, in 10 states. And now I'm actually working on my latest venture, which kind of came out of Schoolhouse. And the idea is that if we're going to have all of these kind of alternative forms of education, learning pods, micro schools, online schools, we need alternative forms to fund them. And so my latest venture is called Agora. And basically, it's helping families access those alternative streams of funding. Alternative streams of funding being things like ESAs and, and state funding and things like that? or Yeah, so ESAs are one of them. There's also kind of some interesting work going on with something that's known as parent-directed education spending, which is essentially where districts or charters are taking their state funding and then actually giving a few hundred or in some cases a few thousand dollars to parents to spend as they'd like. 
And then, of course, you also have vouchers, tax credit scholarships, and tax deductions and credits. And so we're starting with ESAs because those actually kind of need the most work in terms of access. But yeah, the eventual uh, plan is to kind of provide access to all of them. And Agora is it's a kind of like front end for accessing these funds that makes it easier for parents or easier to states to distribute or both. Yes. Yeah. So basically, you know, we want it to be super easy and convenient for parents to sign up and kind of abstract away a lot of the work that sometimes goes into learning about and accessing these programs. And then on the back end, we're going to provide the states with access to kind of all the information about where parents are actually spending their dollars and kind of which programs are effective. Oh, I mean, this is really cool. So why don't we kind of start, I mean, there's a lot we could talk about and a ton that you've done, but why don't we start here? So, I mean, one of the things that seems to be changing in education or seems to be a really big deal is the changing financing model, that there are states that are considering passing legislation of, of various pushing forward various financing models that you described that are very, very different from the traditional financing model in schools, which is basically that money goes to districts. And then sometimes districts have to give some of it to charters, which they hate doing, and then they need to you, which, which you experience very personally. But I guess my first question is, to what extent is there really momentum for changing the financing model? Like, like I want, so I want to believe I'm older. What's the evidence that I should believe that this is like a real thing as opposed to like, you know, a few loud parents on Twitter and people are always making some noise about homeschooling and alternate financing models. But like, is it really going somewhere? How optimistic are you about it? What are you seeing in this space? Yeah, it's a good question because I think there's a lot of noise out there and it can be difficult to separate that from kind of the underlying signal. And so I think there's a few key points that are helpful to kind of isolate and identify. I think the first is that we're now in, you know, the second year of the pandemic or in some ways the third year of the pandemic. And we've now seen kind of two years of declining public school enrollment in most major districts across the country. And for the first time in a long time, districts are going to have to confront the fact that parents increasingly are kind of voting with their feet for a long time, even with charters and private, it was kind of a rising tide lifts all boats and everyone was growing. But, you know, where I'm located here in New York City, the DOE has lost 60,000 students over two years, nearly 6%. And that's true if you look in DC, LA, even cities that are growing like Austin actually still have districts that are shrinking. So I think that's, that's six, kind of that's crazy. Sixty thousand. So I'm in New York too. So sixty thousand. Yeah. That's like, I mean, there's what like a million students in New York. Something there's like a million. That? Yeah. So that's about six percent. Yeah, that's a lot. That's not a yeah. small change. You would, especially since you would expect it to go up a little bit. Right. So I think that's kind of one indicator, and then you kind of have to ask, okay, well, if those parents are opting out of the public school system, where are they going? And in the U.S., you essentially kind of have four options for education because every child between roughly the ages of 6 and 16 has to attend school. So you can either go to the public schools, which we've already said are shrinking. Charters, which although can be large in urban areas, generally only educate a very small portion, about like 3 million of the 50 million K-12 through students in the U.S. Private, which kind of traditionally has held steady at about 10%, about 5 million, and then homeschool. And you're actually seeing the, the largest growth in homeschool. Now, the numbers are 
I'd say not clear at this point because homeschooling is reported at the state level and each state would categorize homeschooling differently. But I'd say there's been roughly nearly a double, a doubling of kind of the pre-pandemic homeschooling numbers to where we are now. There's some debate about what's happened this year, but it's pretty clear that that's kind of one of the largest options. And I think along with homeschooling, you're also seeing a growing trend in micro schools and learning pods. So there's a lot of kind of early indications when you look at state numbers about homeschooling numbers in North Carolina, for example, I think doubling um, in a single year, New York, the same other states seeing, you know, doubling or tripling the amount of homeschoolers. So I think you're increasingly seeing people choose alternatives when they're leaving those public schools. And so I think those are kind of two big portions of kind of the, the thesis behind my company. And then the third one is that these programs are increasingly being passed. So if we take education savings accounts as just one example, there were about seven that were passed just last year. And so now about 30% of US states have some type of ESA program. Already, South Carolina has proposed to pass one this year. I think Virginia, with the recent change in governorship, is going to try one. And so I think that there is a lot of momentum we'll kind of see what shakes out. But my sense is that we're at kind of a major inflection point in K-12 education right now. That's interesting. So the so the kind of three, I mean, that's a lot of convincing evidence. So there's like consilience. <laughs> so so the, three, the, so the three pieces are, one is that the status quo is changing, like the public schools uh-huh. are losing students. Two is that homeschool is growing, like, like, like you know, some, somewhere on the order of doubling. And then, so the demand side is increasing. And three is that on the supply side, in terms of financing and state financing, there seems to be at least some momentum in that direction. That's great. And then on the, in terms of the state financing, like, how real is it? Like, is it like, I mean, there's a difference between kind of, A, there's a difference between talking about things and then actually passing them into legislation. And then B, once they're in legislation, there's a question as to like, how many people actually use them? I guess this is part of what Agora is about is making it easier to access. But is it kind of still mostly talk or are things actually happening to kind of get money to parents? Yeah. So I would say that as programs have matured, they've continued to grow in the number of students accessing them and the overall total dollar spend. If we take one program, so uh, Florida, for example, has a family empowerment scholarship program. Uh, It's been around for a couple of years now, and it mainly qualifies for special needs family. There is about, I think, $250 million that's currently being utilized in that program. And they're serving about 24,000 students the last time I checked the data. That's a pretty significant portion But I think the more interesting numbers are overall the number of students who are eligible for it. So it's currently serving, as I said, about 24, but over 10% of Florida's K through 12 students are eligible, which is closer to 275,000. And so I think that as these alternatives proliferate, part of the change is going to be parents becoming more aware of these programs, enrolling in them. And then the size essentially increasing. And so I think you're going to kind of see this flywheel effect that as more programs continue to expand, more parents hear about them, and they continue to join. And I think the other thing to note is that programs that have been passed in past years had pretty strict qualifications. So I just mentioned the Florida one. But if we look at more recent ones like West Virginia, they passed an ESA that is essentially universal, 94% 
of students qualify. And so once that reach, reaches maturity, that will be kind of billions of dollars in that single program alone in West Virginia. So I think increasingly, there's kind of some knowledge that's being shared among parents, more parents are enrolling, and then new programs are actually from the get-go kind of being uh, proposed that are larger than the the older programs, which were a little bit narrower. So if all of this is true and grows and continues as expected, it seems like a huge deal. Like, like it seems like this isn't this isn't a small thing. It, it seems like this could. I mean, the West Virginia law could end up completely changing the way that the schooling model looks in West Virginia. Is that the right way to think about it, or is it like still unknown what the impact is going to be? Or like, how, like how do you see the financing model driving driving kind of broader changes in education? Yeah, I think that increasingly you're going to see more and more. I would say divergence in certain states between those who embrace kind of the school choice model, whether through vouchers or tax credits, scholarships or ESAs and other states that it's not as feasible to pass. It. So, you know, I'm here in New York. The politics are not clear as to how you'd ever pass an ESA here. But I think there's actually some interesting talk and discussions that's like very early about the idea that I was talking about before, which is something called parent-directed education spending. And a policy expert in Oklahoma came up with the term Sam Duell. But the basic idea is, you know, in New York City schools, on average, say they get about $16,000 per student. And I just quoted you the number that about 60000 have left. When it reaches a budget issue, which will be in about a year or two once federal funding run out, runs out, I think there's going to be an interesting question as to what does the DOE do? Does it continue to cut staff, which makes about 80% of their costs, right. and yep. enter what could potentially be kind of a death spiral, right? Because if you, if you cut staff, now you're cutting services, parents increasingly flopped out. Or do they try to make some type of accommodation where they reach out to those 60,000 parents and they say, hey, if you come back, if you enroll in us, we will give you, say, a quarter of the funding, $4,000. You can go, you can do your homeschool, you can do online learning, you can do your learning pod, and we'll kind of have that split. And we'll, you know, for all intents and purposes, you'll be enrolled with us, but you'll kind of be able to do your own thing. And there are some charters and districts who are doing that now. And I think that's, that's kind of the, pr- that's kind of like the, pr- that's like Prunda like in the model, right? Or, it's, yes. It's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, San Francisco faces this issue now, right? I mean, they have, right. a, they're having, I mean, I can't remember exactly what the budget shortfall is, but I did a back of the envelope calculation. And I was like, they're going to have to get rid of like a thousand teachers like that. Like it just seems like or something like that, like 500 to a thousand. There's no other way to reach those, those kinds of budget numbers. And yeah, I mean, what's unclear to me from my vantage point is like, to what extent that's a death spiral? To what extent it's like, well, you're losing that many students. So you can actually kind of take the hit in terms of you don't need that many staff anymore. Yeah, I mean, the kind of negotiate the deal, I mean, it's a deal with the devil, right? Once you make that deal, all the parents are going to want it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I also think is interesting and is something where I don't think there's great data on, but there's a lot of anecdotes, I think, is that teaching right now is a very, very tough job. And I say that as a former teacher, but I think it's far beyond anything that I ever experienced with kind of constant closures. And there's a lot, I think, of just focus in in kind of a negative way on the classroom where teachers don't necessarily feel supported. I think that increasingly 
some of the best teachers are going to be looking at alternatives to just kind of the current model of one teacher, 30 students. And I think you're already seeing that with places like OutSchool, right? Some of the teachers on OutSchool are able to make comfortable six-figure salaries without ever having to go into the classroom. And I think that is going to be a divergence that I'm going to be looking at as well, where I know some teachers who have started micro schools in the Bay Area. They left wealthy public school districts. They told their parents, the parents enrolled in their micro school, and they're now making double what they previously were, and they have a much higher quality of life. I think teachers are also going to be a driver of this, where you know the top talent goes. I think parents are going to follow that too. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, if you and, and if you combine those two points, if you kind of look at the financing models. So in New York, what is it like twenty thousand dollars a student? It's probably more more than that. Yeah, I mean the the most recent number I saw was about twenty seven thousand. Yeah, so closer, closer to in, closer yeah, to thirty thousand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and Ray, I don't know, I don't think Ray's here, but our uh, CEO at Higher Ground. At some point, he like did the numbers for like, okay, but what if you consider all the insurance breaks and tax credits mm. and the fact that they don't have to pay the fact that they don't have to pay, pay property taxes? It ends up being closer to like thirty five thousand, or like it gets to kind of beyond private school tuition numbers. And if you think about just the the way that the modern economy has gone, the way that the kind of digital economy has gone and the gig economy has gone, like you can have 10 students at those prices and make a lot of money. And to the extent that these, you know, alternate kind of follow the parents, um, parent directed financing models and some are in some way or another enabling that, I would absolutely expect teachers to, to take advantage of that. Why wouldn't they? Especially given the kind of level of burnout and the level of frustration in the teaching field right now, for sure. So that's really exciting. Before I switch topics, is there anything else that you want to tell me about Agora? Where are you at? Is it, I mean, when when did you start this company? So so started and financed it just kind of in the the last month of 2021. So still super early days and haven't, you know, made any announcements about the funding or kind of the first date that we'll be operating in, but hopefully have something on that front in the next few weeks as we get up and running. We've been working with state regulators about kind of getting in place for the upcoming fall school year. Okay. Okay. That's really, really exciting. And if I'll ask you this again at the end, but if somebody wants to follow you in that work, what should they look at? Do you have a website up or is it still like... Yeah. So Twitter. Yeah. Twitter is probably the best place for it. That's probably where I'll be announcing uh, the site, which should be rolled out in about two weeks. But at Joseph J. Connor is best place to follow along for that. Cool. So switching gears a little bit, the way that I know your work the best is Twitter. <laughs> and my interactions with you and impressions of you are that you're like a modern Twitter equivalent of like, like in the Enlightenment, there are people who like ran and organized salons and um, we're just, <laughs> we're just, we're like interested in like, what, what are the science experiments? What's going on in philosophy? What's going on in math? What's going on in exploration? What's going on in discovery? And we're going to organize it and bring people together. And like, that's kind of what I see you doing. So you're, you're interested in a lot of things and you kind of organize them and tweet about them and connect people. And I think, I mean, first of all, I don't know if that's how you think of yourself, but I think that that is like, I, that's a tremendous value. So if you don't follow Joe on Twitter already, Joseph on Twitter, you should, what is it? Joseph J. Connor? Is that right? Yeah. At Joseph J. Connor. Joseph J. Connor. But kind of in that function as like a surveyor of the landscape and a connector, you are in a position to see the landscape and to see a lot of unique things. So aside from what we've talked about here, um, which is mainly the financing models and education and, and some, some related things, like what do you see in education? Like what, like what is the state of things? What are, what are some of the areas where you see movement and excitement? 
not just in the near future, but like actually in the present. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for the kind words. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think we're really, as I said before, at an inflection point. And so I, we talked about the financing piece of it, but I think there's also an inflection point when it comes to different models and providers. And so we touched on micro schools. I think you're seeing kind of a rise of small, nimble schools led by one or two teachers with, you know, 10 to 40 students. And there's kind of lots of great examples of those out there, like Prenda, uh, Schoolhouse, the company I started, Wildflower, Kaipod, some others. But I think one of the most exciting things about that is that there's actually a lot of, as I refer them, kind of mom and pop micro schools that have started where it's, you know, a parent who always had it in the back of their mind, but then the pandemic kind of forced them to make a choice and they ended up opening up a learning pod or micro school. So I think that's something that is very exciting. And I'm seeing increasingly kind of small learning experiences. So maybe there's someone who runs a science camp during the summer and it's everyone's favorite kind of science camp instructor. They're now kind of taking that. And if there's demand, they're actually opening up a micro school. So that's kind of one thing that I'm super excited about, which is kind of more nimble, more what, alternative what is, ways. What is it? What What is exciting to you about that? I mean, beyond the fact that it's small, like, do you think that there are kind of advantages to that model? Does it end up looking different because it's small, like in, in terms of how it's organized? Yeah. So I think that you know, we talk a lot in education about kind of school choice and, and, and different varieties of schooling. But I think for most parents, there's actually not too many outside of kind of large urban areas, different schools for them to choose from. I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs and we basically kind of had Catholic or public schools. And that was it. There were, where I lived, there were, there weren't a, you got the, you got the, you got the, the Quaker schools, right? Yeah. <laughs> that is true. We did have Quaker as well. And so one thing I'm, I'm excited about seeing is actually in a school system, like kind of largely that, that is now more responsive where people are starting these micro schools and learning pods, kind of what new modes of learning can bubble up. So obviously, you know, your work uh, with Montessori is something that I'm very interested in. But I think one of the things that, that people forget, right, is that, you know, Montessori was a movement that was started by a single person. And I'm interested to see, you know, are there going to be more, you know, for lack of a better term, Maria Montessori's who are starting kind of very particular types of education with a very clear value prop and mission. And so I'm interested in that. Like, what does that look like in the 21st century? I think also we talked about teachers. I think a lot of these experiences having run Schoolhouse, I know that most teachers like having smaller class size. It's something that's often debated in policy circles. But just as a professional, having less teachers means you get to spend more time with them. Or excuse me, having less students means teachers get to spend more time with them. So I think that's actually kind of one thing that's really interesting. But the other thing that I would say is that there's a lot of interesting online learning experiences that I'm following. So three examples would be Synthesis, Primer, and Ender, which I think are all good examples of kind of, and I, I hate to use this because it's kind of a buzzword, but like digitally native. So it was essentially created on the internet, a digitally native learning experience. And I'm really excited to see what those companies grow into. And if you talk to parents who, who use them, it really is completely different in many cases from what they're, they're currently doing. And so I'm excited to see kind of the growth of yeah. those. And just, just to clarify, so digitally native as opposed to like 
you know, like, you know, remote learning where it's like you're trying to translate something that happens in like a typical classroom into an online experience. This is like, no, you're not trying to translate anything. You're trying to think fresh. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. I think it's kind of instead of taking, you know, so I I think kind of out school, which is a great company, but in many ways, right, it kind of takes basically small group instruction, which often happens in person and then puts it online. Yes, it increases the reach and you kind of can have more diverse curriculum and whatnot. But I think these three companies were started by people who really wanted from the beginning to build something that you could only build with the internet. I actually think uh, another example would be Galileo, um, which has really been kind of intentional about making kind of a diverse world school, right? And allowing people from around the world to participate in a single school entity, which prior to the internet wouldn't really have been possible. That's great. In terms of, I'm, I'm interested in, um, so just one, one addendum to what you said about what's different about micro schools. I mean, one thing that I would expect would be different, although I don't have any data on this other than, other than anecdotes is that if you kind of look at the history of education, really before the 19th and 20th centuries, most schools, most kind of elementary schools um, were pretty small. So most of them mm-hmm. followed a kind of one room schoolhouse model. And one of the things that is very, very common in the history of education, really going back 3,000 years, is mixed-age classrooms and mastery-based learning and something more personalized. And and it's not like, I don't want to like describe it as like, throughout the whole history of education, it was this wonderful, progressive, alternative approach. It wasn't. Like, it was drill and kill. Like, if you, if you got things wrong, the teacher would yell at you and beat you. But there were things about it that were, like, in, in certain ways, very modern. It's like, oh, you're paying to learn how to read. And so... We're going to give you lessons that are targeted towards you, and we will keep teaching you until you actually know it, instead of like the current model where you're like put through the grade system and like with other people your age, and you know, um, nobody knows how much you're learning, or maybe you just don't even learn it. Maybe you just get a C and, and then you move on. I would imagine that micro schools just end up bringing in some of those dynamics, like where it's like more mixed age, more individualized, um, more focused on what the students are actually learning and less on like assessing them according to some sort of um, predefined um, track or standard. Yeah. And I I think, Matt, if if I could jump in, I I think that is a good point, right? That when you look at the scope of the history of education, of, you know, humanity, the current model that we have that we're just discussing with districts and, you know, even including charters and others is really kind of small in scale compared to what previously has been the main mode of education, which is kind of small classes done at home, mixed age, siblings together. And I agree, you know, that there are obviously downsides to that. Large numbers of people were kind of disenfranchised throughout human history through that system. But I do think that that is probably maybe more of a kind of constant in our history. And I think that that is kind of coming back, right? It is a little bit of a kind of peculiar thing that we segregate people by ages in K through 12 when we kind of rarely do that in the workplace, right? And so I think things like that will maybe kind of go away. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that would be great. I think it's bizarre and really destructive that we do that. And and I'm, I'm in the middle of trying to understand the history of that question specifically. Like, even the fact that we call them grades is weird. If you think about <laughs> it, it's like, it's like, they're not grades, they're ages. Like, you're not, yeah. not kind of grouping the students by some sort of graduated, I don't even know what grade is supposed to mean, but some sort of ability level. Like, that. that's not what you're doing. Like, it's not like this is the fourth grade and you, you pass into it. It's like, you've turned 10 and you've passed into it. So, right. 
it's just a totally bizarre way of grouping people. And there's something, and I think that it, it is very recent in history. It's really the last hundred years and something kind of forced about it. Like it's mm -hmm. not, it's not what kind of naturally emerges from the default models. So I'm really interested in what you said about specific trying to um, recapture what you said. So, so the idea, the idea was, is like, look, if you have teachers and educators and pedagogues, who are running these little schools and, and running these, these small cohorts, you would expect that kind of fairly specific missions and value propositions would emerge. So not just like, yeah, like you've got a teacher and they've got 10 kids and they're doing a great job because there's a small classroom and they're getting a general education, but it sounds like you expected like specific theses to emerge. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is based on maybe more kind of my personal experience, but having run a network of micro schools. One of the things I was so interested about was teachers and parents' ability to really kind of craft an educational experience that was drastically different than what they previously had. And it's interesting in the way that it's almost like most teachers kind of currently conduct their classrooms, right? In, in a typical public school or private school where there's not a very clear pedagogy like Montessori or Waldorf, teachers generally kind of come up with all of their own rules and create this kind of whole universe of culture. And one thing that I saw at micro schools, having worked in public schools as well, was that that actually got accelerated um, because the communities were smaller. They had kind of banded together because of a shared interest in a certain type of education. And so I would expect over time that those micro schools would actually generate kind of different ways of learning and thinking about learning. And I think there are some early examples of this. I'm going to butcher the name, but there is a micro school down in Austin, Texas. I believe it's called Longview. And they have okay. a very particular way of teaching math, elementary math school. And essentially, they have kind of created in the Texas micro school community a lot of people who are teaching this particular kind of way of math, and it's been incredibly successful. There's no name for it now, but you can imagine, right, 5, 10, 20 years down the road that that actually becomes kind of a new type of pedagogy. Like, um, the, long, like the long view approach or something like that. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And do you think that it's, I mean, you, you cited that one of the reasons for this might be that like, look, people are coming together around these common interests and that gets accentuated and accelerated. I would imagine that too, some of it is that even at, like in a district school context, but even in like a private school context where you're in a kind of pre-existing institution, there's just a lot of surrounding context and scaffolding that even if you're kind of doing your own thing as a teacher, that kind of like guides and limits and maybe even dampens what's, what's new and different about what you do. And if you have a micro school context, like you don't have that, like you don't have like administrators and you don't have other teachers and classes to worry about and you don't have to like, like the question isn't as acute as to like, where exactly are the students going next, next year? And how do you have to prepare them and what tests do you have to prepare them for? And so it's really just you and your ideas about education and the families that you're working with. And that, that I think is probably a healthier context for thinking about what you want to achieve in education. Right. I mean, I was a public school teacher for a couple of years, and we had to submit our lesson plans on a weekly basis, and the lesson plans had to be approved. And, you know, we constantly had principal observations, and we were constantly kind of norming as a team. And so all of those things, I think, kind of brought us towards a particular standard that the public school wanted us to follow. And it kind of, in some ways, I think, 
you kind of hit the nail on the head. It, it dampens any type of kind of individual movement or kind of exploration outside of outside of those bounds. I mean, it's interesting that you're saying so. This this point that micro schools tend to coalesce around specific methods and educational theses. This is a new point for me. Like, like I haven't really thought about this before. And and I, it's really exciting if it's true because part of what the world needs is not just like generally more individualization and generally kind of movement away from traditional education. But I think what the world needs is very specific theses about like what content and what pedagogy and what methodology and what names are good in education and people to really commit to them and explore them and work them out along the lines that you know, Maria Montessori and other educators have have throughout history, such that you get like a pretty fleshed out implementation model that's not vague and hand wavy or not just a rejection of something old, but it is something new. Um, and the idea that structurally micro schools are going to get you there, particularly if you're kind of moving away from the district models, that that's that's a new and exciting idea to me. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think it's very, you know, early stages with that, but I am excited to see where it goes. And I think increasingly what I'm excited about is seeing learning that traditionally only happened in one setting, say after school program or a summer camp is now actually kind of being rolled out into perhaps a school or some other type of alternative learning experience. And so that to me is kind of very exciting as well. Cool, cool. So I've got a few more things to talk to you about, but this is Clubhouse, and there are a couple people that have uh, been raising their hands for a long time, so I am going to invite them up to the stage. So let's first invite Keel, if I can, who often joins these meetings. Hey, Keel, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Matt. Thanks. Go ahead. Thanks, Matt. Enjoying your talk, Joseph. I'm glad you guys discussed the complete insanity of age-segregated grades. I just think it's just an utter, utter disaster and one of the worst things to happen to education ever. And like you guys said, it's just a relatively recent phenomenon, late 19th century. And I'm glad that there's some schools starting to recognize this. The problem is, you know, from what everything I've read about micro schools, I have friends who have their kids in them. They're an improvement, but they have a, a lot of room to, to improve themselves because what they they still have a lot of the same features of mass schooling. Thankfully, they're much much smaller, but they still have, you know, they have like mixed age grades. I suppose that's an improvement. You still have kids around other kids in a room, and they have way too much group learning, for my belief. I think that they the curriculum still tends to be one size fits all, not individualized enough. Um, a lot of them still have like grade, you know, letter grades. And another big problem is there's not enough direct job skill training and life preparation. I think that the entirety of K-12 and even micro schools sort of modeled that, the K-12, the public K-12, and that they feel they have to prepare their kids for college, which is sort of a nonsensical concept. So really, you, you should hit the ground running and start with the, you know, the job skills and life training in K-12. So just like your thoughts on that, if you could, Joseph. Thank you. Yeah, I think that the way I think about micro schools is that they do provide more flexibility, but like a lot of things, it's kind of up to the parents, the instructor, and the kids as to what that entails. So I think if you were to kind of look at micro schools on a spectrum, you would probably find a lot of them lying closer to probably the traditional public school model than maybe kind of the 
freedom that you could use at a micro school. And so I think that's why I think micro schools are a very interesting development, but they're kind of just one, I think, of many changes that's happening. As I said before, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by training. And so the way that I think about schools in the U.S. is kind of varying degrees of autonomy and, and kind of if you imagine the highest degree of control as a public school and then the, the, the next would be a charter, which gives uh, parents and teachers more freedom. Then the next is a private, which uh, generally is mainly free from state interference. And then the final one is a homeschool. And that is nearly uh, as completely free and autonomous as you can get in the U.S. at least. I think that you know, that's a good way to think about where micro schools fall, because technically a micro school can be registered with a state as anything from a homeschool to a private school to a charter or a public. All of those have operated and operate micro schools at one degree or another. And so it really is kind of up to the instructors and the parents, I think, to design something that uh, you're talking about, which is something that's kind of free from uh, grade or kind of other more formal requirements. If, if I could just follow up on Kiel's question, actually, I mean, so I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like a, a, like a different version of this question might be something like, how relatively important is it to have this kind of structural financial and or delivery change, like from district schools to homeschooling, as opposed to like a substantive pedagogical change, like like a kind of view as to like, I, I have a th- like what? Like, to what extent is what drives education, change in education and positive change in education, like having a thesis as to what education should look like, Maria Montessori style, and to what extent is it like having the freedom to come up with these theses or, or to implement them or to experiment with them in a more structural way? Obviously, it's not either or, and there's a relationship between them, but I could imagine somebody being like, yeah, like, you've got more of a market, but like, what are the solutions? Like, who, who's coming up with the solutions? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I completely agree with you, Matt, that I think it's both and. I think that a lot of times there are, you're essentially looking for, I think, the model that gives you the most flexibility in order to kind of carry out your pedagogical approach. And so I think that micro schools can be a tool for that, but definitely there are other items that are needed, I think, to kind of carry that out. Okay, great. Thanks. Kiel says that he has a follow-up, but I'm going to move to Denise for now. And Kiel, we'll come back to you if you have time. Denise, are you there? Yes, thank you so much. Um, So I'm currently teaching in the public schools, and I've been teaching for 10 years now. And I am definitely one of those teachers that is looking for the next thing, um, just because I am tired of just the same old, same old, and trying to innovate from within a system that is not embracing that. So maybe like, what would your advice to me to maybe look at my next steps or if I would try to jump out and maybe start my own micro school or because I do, you know, I do have quite a following of um, parents and students. And, you know, my my passion is really in STEM education, making sure that, you know, all students have access to equitable education in that regard and preparing them for their next steps. Um, So what would your advice, I guess, to be to me as someone that's probably looking to, to jump ship? Um, and maybe start something new, I would appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first, uh, congrats on kind of making that decision to to start something new that's always big and, and scary. So I applaud you on that. Look, you know, I don't think it's actually too complicated how to start 
your own micro school or learning pod if that's what you want to do. You know, Matt and I were talking at the beginning of the hour about different opportunities, and those are just two of them. But assuming that that's kind of what you're interested in doing, starting your own thing, most of the learning pods and micro schools that we started at Schoolhouse started just by finding kind of a great teacher like yourself who would then go out and talk to parents that she had previously taught their kids. They usually started with kind of part-time or full-time summer camp, uh, did that for a few weeks. And if that worked out, they kind of rolled it over into a school in the fall. And I think when you're kind of thinking about starting a micro school, there's basically three things you need. You need some location. And so a lot of places that we used originally were actually houses because uh, you could start them easily. The space is free. You're generally kind of free from a lot of uh, regulation that you would have in, in other areas. And so as we started them there, if they grew and expanded, then we would actually move them to kind of a retail storefront. We actually in New York City opened up some and kind of bars and restaurants that shuttered during the pandemic. So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is, as I said, you know, talk to the parents, recruit them. And then the third one is kind of all of those administrative options. And there actually are now companies and kind of organizations that can help you on that front of starting your own micro school. So a few just kind of off the top of my head, one one is a school, they support that. Another one is the Vila Fund, which actually gives non dilutive grants to teachers who want to start their own thing. And then a third one uh, would be um, there's a guy in Las Vegas who runs kind of an online learning academy for people looking to start their own school. And that's called the Southern Nevada Leadership Micro School, I think. What was the middle one that you said again? It was, oh, the Vila Fund, V-E-L-A Fund. And feel free to reach out to me directly on Twitter and happy to kind of, you know, talk you through all this. But that's an option as well, Vila Fund. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I think I've seen you before in our chat, so at some point we should just connect separately too. Um, I would love to um, chat about what you're doing. Thank you so much. I will definitely reach out to both of you. Dennis, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, welcome. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. My internet's a bit spotty, so I'll try my best. But yeah, I really love the discussion and very intrigued by a lot of the points that Joseph was talking about as far as kind of decentralizing schooling, right? And a lot of platforms you mentioned, like OutSchool and Synthesis I'm familiar with. I currently am in the ed tech field. I was a former educator in New York and I positioned or transitioned into the ed tech field where now I'm creating my own platform. So essentially what it does is allow educators to create video courses. And I thought about this as a way to make it supplemental, right? For especially homeschoolers and, and unschoolers, micro schoolers as well. But I wanted to know your thoughts on this because, as you mentioned, there are a lot of platforms, you know, people that are making their own companies and building out these platforms to reach these, you know, these families and so forth. So what is your take on this kind of like this platform of educators creating video courses and allowing for, you know, students to, to kind of use that content for supplemental purposes and also peer-to-peer instruction? I think that. I'm a big proponent of peer-to-peer instruction, and I feel like children love learning from other children. So what are your takes on those? Sorry if I said too much. <laughs> no, that's great. Thanks, Dennis, for sharing. I think that, honestly, we're in really the early innings of this inflection point in K-12 education. And so I think anyone who's trying to build 
company, a tool, an organization, a nonprofit, it's a great time to do that because there is so much kind of uh, free space and I'd say coming demand for tools and orgs that are going to support micro schools or learning pods or going to support teachers who are doing kind of um, gig economy jobs or teachers who are on out school. And so my sense is that, you know, without knowing the particulars of your platform, that, you know, this is kind of a very advantageous time. And there are, I'd say, a lot of interest, both in the nonprofit world, as well as in the VC world for kind of backing new approaches and new learning models. I also think you touched on peer-to-peer learning, which I think especially in certain ages can be pretty powerful. So all of those, I think, are kind of good areas to explore. Do you have, just to amplify Dennis's question, do you have any kind of general thoughts or theses on just like the universe of education content specifically? Like, I mean, the idea that like there's massively more content out there and this is advantageous to learners and YouTube is a learning resource and educators can scale their their learning content in the form of video as as Dennis is talking about. With content specifically, is there anything interesting that you're seeing or any any thoughts that you have? Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested, Matt, in your thoughts on this as well. But I, I do think that we have so much information that I feel like there is a need for a good curation tool or company, something that essentially kind of allows people to figure out, hey, this is the best teaching tool on this topic or, you know, these series of YouTube videos or podcasts. And I'm not currently aware of kind of a great version of that now. So I think that with increasing information, there's a need for curation. I think that content is... The the way that I see people use content now is either general or specific. So I think that when we started Schoolhouse, I was surprised at how many parents generally didn't have an opinion on a particular pedagogy. Because the way that we would start those early conversations is actually asking parents, you know, do you want this type of curriculum? And most would just kind of shrug their shoulders. There were parents who were very keen on certain pedagogical approaches. And I think that that will continue. But I think increasingly, right, content is either kind of on a very general level, or you're seeing it put out with kind of a very clear, you know, approach um, like Montessori or Waldorf. And so I think that there's kind of a need for both and. Yeah, I mean, just to offer a couple of thoughts. One is that, I mean, as much great content as there is out there, and it's like literally never in history has there been a better time to be a learner from the perspective of being able to find content that that's, you know, really explanatory and helpful and kind of hits your motivation at the right level and is on the topics that you're interested in. I still kind of feel like we're underinvested in it as a kind of society of educators, like the, the truly great content in education, like the the powers of 10 videos, if you guys know that video, it's something that I cite a lot. Um, if, if you don't know it, you should Google it. It's like an education classic. It's just, just in terms of visualizing um, orders of magnitude and, and what they mean in the physical world or things like Cosmos, um, this old Carl Sagan documentary series. Like there, there aren't that many instances of truly, truly wonderful, exceptional, enduring pieces of education on content like like you know like who, who like who is kind of bringing the the level of thinking that went into game of thrones like to the world of education content like it's it's more quantity than quality and and then it becomes a curation issue and i, I just wonder if that's the right approach so it's just a question that i have more than more than a thesis but it seems to me like we should be seeing kind of more and more interesting things than we're seeing um given given the volume that we're seeing yeah 
Matt, I mean, that's an interesting issue. And I wonder if it's just an underinvestment or if there's not necessarily a very clear way for people to make money. But my, my concern is that, you know, a lot of people are talking about VR and AR as maybe another frontier yeah. in education. Yeah. And I don't necessarily know that, that those are going to take off if we haven't really solved high quality content with the current technological tools. I don't know what would be different about that. So yeah, I think that that is, why don't we have blockbuster educational content, you know, that's as good as kind of things that Hollywood and, and other yep. people put up. Yeah. And if you, and there's even particular areas, like I don't think that there's that much really great history content out there. I think that there's, there's better content in STEM, but nothing that I've found that I'm just like really, really bowled over with in terms of learning American history or something like that. Okay. Thanks, Dennis. Bernard, are you there? I am. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Great conversation. I've been intrigued by micro schools for uh, quite a long time. My first study was a study of 100 alternative schools about 10 to 15 years ago. And that was uh, that sort of led to one of my publications uh, quite a while ago. And and then I've done probably about three or 4,000 interviews uh, since then. And about five years ago, I became really intrigued by the development of uh, what has currently become known as the micro school movement and sometimes learning pods more recently. And I've identified sort of these seven common traits that pretty much reveal themselves in almost all the micro schools that were within my samples. But one of them aligns very much, Joseph, with what you were speaking to before. While many people think of the defining trait of a micro school as size, which is obviously a factor, the one that was quite consistent, nearly universal, was that every single one of them had what I referred to, came to refer to as an unavoidable, undeniable school shaping concept that really demanded 100% shared philosophy uh, within that that learning environment or school. And it could be anything from project-based learning to place-based learning to it have like a Montessori or some kind of Summerhill or Sudbury influence, self-directed learning, classical education, something. But uh, it was always prevalent. And I'll just stop there and see if you had any comments on that. But uh, just to Denise's before, there are two other micro school entrepreneurs on Clubhouse that may be of interest. Both of them have published books to guide people on how to launch a micro school. One of them is uh, Mara Leinenberg. And L I N A B E R G E R, and she wrote a book called The Micro School Builder's Handbook. And then another one is Jade Rivera, R I V E R A. She had a book called Micro Schools Creating Personalized Learning on a Budget. And she focused upon, I think her micro school was focused on serving twice exceptional students. And my name is Bernard. I'll stop there. Well, thank you, Bernard, for sharing that. Yeah, I agree with that um, and would be intrigued by kind of what the other six concepts were. But I think that the way that that comes about on kind of a practical level is that microschools are the exception rather than the rule. So people need to opt into them. And so in my experience, to take a micro school and to run one and to get it going takes a lot more work than a typical private, charter, or public because there's so much of a relationship that develops between the parents and the teacher and the students who kind of all have to work together. So I think that makes a lot of sense kind of from the experience um, that I've seen. So micro schools, you think take like starting a micro school takes more work than starting a private school? Or you mean starting a micro school takes more work than like working at a private school? I think that it, it takes more work to start a micro school from parents. I'm, I'm not necessarily see, talking from, from the, from the yeah. administrative point of view. My point there is that generally, 
for a private school, you can start it in kind of a certain way. You can get the facility, you can get the funding, you convert crew teachers, start kind of it one or two years in advance, uh, you know, kind of putting the message out of marketing. All that takes a, a incredible amount of work and money. But with micro schools, the way that I've typically seen them develop is more of a kind of organic way in which a teacher like Denise, for example, uh, approaches parents. There's kind of a back and forth often on kind of what's going to go into the school. And so I just see that there's often more parent participation in the micro school learning pod model. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Bernard. Gild, you had a follow-up from earlier. Do you still have the follow-up? I'll give you the last question if you do. Thanks, Matt. You know, I, I wanted to make a quick comment on peer-to-peer learning. You know, I think it's possible for it to be effective, something like a if you have a mixed-age environment, like a 10-year-old teaching a 5-year-old their ABCs or teaching them how to read. I think I'm fine with that. But my problem with schooling in general is it's way too insular. You have kids in a room day after day, year after year. And my big problem is we've conceived education very narrowly as something that takes place in a schoolhouse when that is only like 2% of someone's life. And I've been a lot, on a lot of rooms with Bernard, and he pointed out that when he got out of college, he read 45 books in 45 days, you know, things like that. It's a lifelong process that involves a lot of different things, learning on the job. Literacy is a big component that I got, I think really, really got sidelined when we went to the institutional mass schooling approach. And, you know, there's just way too much group learning. But my, my final question for you, Joe, is uh, how do you think we can, just because you, a lot of us here on this room, we were involved in education reform. And I'm just frustrated that we're not getting the sort of widespread progress and reform that we want. And, and do you have some ideas how we might further you know, we're active on LinkedIn and Clubhouse and things like that, but just some sort of approach that we should take to, to further reform. Thank you. It's a good question. I think there actually are a number of policy changes, and maybe I'll kind of focus on those because that's kind of where my expertise is. But I think that increasing alternative funding mechanisms, so whether that's tax credit scholarships, vouchers, tax credits and deductions, ESAs, will allow parents to increasingly vote with their feet when it comes to what they think is best for their family and their son or daughter. So I think that's a big one. I think actually uh, allowing part-time enrollment statutes so people can enroll at the public or charter on kind of a -a two-a-day week basis allows people increased flexibility. I think to kind of your point about learning happening outside the classroom, There's some really interesting laws, I would say, mainly in kind of the Midwest that allow people credits for kind of apprenticeships or jobs or um, getting credit essentially kind of outside of the classroom. I was just talking to someone in Indianapolis at Geo Charter Schools today that allows people to go and get trade certifications while they're in high school. So I, I think kind of pushing for those types of policy changes hopefully would lead to kind of a a bigger ecosystem, a more varied choice where there would kind of be options for everyone who wants them. Thank you so much, Joseph. So I think that that's a good note to end on. So if people want to follow your work, they should follow you on Twitter. Is that right? Is that the main? Yes. Okay. And and you're Joseph J. Connor on Twitter at Joseph J. Connor. Um, Really, really excited to learn more about Agora in the next few weeks. If you're launching a website, I will definitely be on the lookout for that. And I'll blast it out from my Twitter as well. So we do these conversations, you know, roughly once a week that we did three this week, I think. Um, so, so it doesn't always work out evenly. And we publish them as a podcast, as a philosophy of education podcast um, over time on Montessorium.com. 
So you can check out past discussions there and um, follow me on Twitter and Montessori on Twitter for more such discussions and announcements. I actually hope to have Joseph back on sometime soon because this was a great discussion. So thank you, Joseph. Do you have anything else that you want to plug before we? Uh, we No, thank you so much. I really appreciate the questions and the back and forth. And yeah, hopefully I can get to join you again soon. Yep. Awesome. All right. Bye, everyone. Have a good night. Take care. (laughs)